I was thinking as I was standing here watching you come in that it's obvious it's the fifth day and it's obvious it's the last lesson of the fifth day and I was thinking that maybe by tomorrow I'll have to carry you in <laughs> Richard said to me prior to my coming up here in this position he said if you got a, a joke to arrest the attention of your audience well I've got a little thing that I will say but I'm going to tease you and keep you awake by not telling it now you will hear it slipped in Some of you may wonder where I go when I drive out in the car. Yesterday I went up the road here for a fair distance and the road takes quite a sharp turn to the left and there's another road with a, a sign up on it. I can't remember. There's a, one of the signs there says something about a rock fest. But as you go down that road a little further, you come to a building, I suspect it's a church, a little bit further on, you come to a site that is called Cedar, Cedar Creek, no, Cedar Creek Cemetery. And you know, if you want to realize how futile life is and how fleeting visit a cemetery and you're starkly reminded of the vain as our hymn goes uh, my days are shorter than a span a little point my life appears how frail at best is dying man how vain are all his hopes and fears. Vain are his ambitions and his noise and his show. Vain are the cares which rack his mind. He heaps up treasures mixed with woe. He dies and leaves them all behind. Take that trip someday down that road and look at it. He dies and leaves it all behind. You may say, what relevance is that to do with what we are to address this morning? You see, Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount is trying to impress upon his followers the importance of a proper frame of mind, a proper spirit, and a proper attitude that he can view himself in terms with reality, if I can put it that way. He's telling us, as we will go down in this sixth chapter, 
that the vain ambitions and the noise and the commotion that we make in this life are but for a moment and were it not for the hope that is extended to us through the graciousness of God we would be like those people at Cedar Creek sure we're going to die and we don't fear it it's part of the evolution of that isn't the word it is part of the more oh, don't, don't help me metamorphosis of life how's that don't ask me to spell it so when we view the teachings of Jesus in this sixth chapter particularly have in the back of your mind the futility of our efforts in this life for anything that is enduring and lasting now you remember yesterday we skipped ahead fairly rapidly in this sixth chapter and we were talking about the fact that men lay up for themselves treasures on earth that are corrupted and his admonition is that our resolution should be not to lay up treasures on earth that we die and leave behind but rather we concentrate on establishing a record a track record a reputation a character that would be suitable for a place in God's kingdom that if our treasure is the attainment of a character that would be suitably adapted for the kingdom age we would have no higher ambition in life it's a lofty concept and one that none of us will attain unto but by the grace of God we are assisted and will be granted if in his wisdom and mercy and long-suffering will allow us to enter into his kingdom of peace but it is an effort now Jesus also we'll come back to this treasure idea as we go on in this uh, chapter he talks about in the 22nd verse the light of the eye or the body is the eye and if thine eye be single thy whole body shall be full of light and if thine eye be evil thy whole body shall be full of darkness if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness how great is that darkness uh, I think that really what he's speaking of here in effect uh, and again there's deeper meanings but if we have a, an objective a single point that we're looking at that we desire to attain unto our eye can be single now I realize in some of the translations it says that uh, an evil eye is one that hey uh, I'm Captain uh, Marvel or whatever it is and I'm going to get you uh, th that kind of an evil eye uh, it isn't really what's involved here 
what it is is a, an outlook or a disposition if you have a, an outlook or a disposition that's evil then your whole body is darkened you, you, you can't see properly but if your eye is single and is concentrated on the light of the gospel then you can see with the varying degrees of clarity the goal that is before Christ speaks in other places about any man that sets his hand to the plow and looks back he's not worthy of the kingdom the inference is keep your eye on where you're plowing to because their plowing was done with a handheld unit and if you didn't keep your eye on where you were going and looking back all the time your furrow would be really a mess uh, so he is giving this idea that you have to concentrate on where you're going. If your eye is single, you, as it were, focus your attention, your energies on that objective you have. I suppose you might call it headstrong. You know, a headstrong child is bent on accomplishing what he sets out to do. If your eye is single, you're headstrong to try and accomplish that which you set out to do. There's at least that thought in this idea. Then he comes to this matter of serving two masters. And this is where it begins to get where the hair is short, as the saying goes. It really binds. And I suspect that if a body, as a body, that we have problems, it'll be in these areas that we hope to address this morning. You can't serve two masters. You know, I, I can cite you what the Apostle Paul uses as an example of this, and of course, there will be sighs by some when I quote it, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and it's at verse 32 he that I would have you without carefulness or without burdens he that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord how he may please the Lord but he that is married cares for the things that are of the world how he may please his wife now that was the apostles uh, view of uh, a split how do I put it gotta be careful a split allegiance that, that's it I think that's a discreet word He's saying that a man that is married, his mind is diverted because of his responsibility to his wife and his family from wholly serving the Lord. His eye isn't completely single anymore. But he doesn't condemn that. We're only citing this as an illustration of a split allegiance. Now, he goes on further, and he says, in effect, 
that man can't serve two masters. Either you either love one or hate the other, or else you behold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, what's the thrust here? We know that mammon was a vernacular of that day to suggest worldly goods, wealth, affluence, and so on. And incidentally, I want to thank all our speakers this morning for setting the groundwork for the conclusions that we hope to draw. Brother Pickock? Pickock? Okay. Brother Peak and Brother Mike. Because all of them have alluded to this matter of our discernment for the things of this life. Now, mammon, as is suggested here, represents all those things that the world has to offer. Whether it's big cars, big houses, thick rugs, uh, wallpaper on your walls, uh, a refrigerator and lots of ice and things like that. All these things uh, are matters that influence us today. And they can become totally consuming to us. Think about it. The things of this life, what is represented in mammon, can totally consume us to the point where our allegiance is so diverted that the singleness of mind or eye is no longer focused on serving the Lord but what we can get out of this life. There's an expression we use. We like to run with the hounds and be with the hare. We can't be both. You can't be a walker hound hobbling along chasing a rabbit and be the rabbit too. It, it just doesn't work. In the matter of split allegiance, it won't work. And I'll tell you something. I think this is the area that most of us have our problems. You know, th this thing on the top of our shoulders is an amazing device. It can weasel and kid you and fool you and rationalize to the point where you can almost make wrong right. It's amazing the effect of the head over what we do. And if our allegiance is diverted, we can adjust and compensate and make allowances because you know we are told that he that doesn't provide for his own is worse than an infidel and we know that we have family responsibilities and that we ought to do all those things that are necessary for the maintenance of our family and so mammon becomes convenient. We grow used to its companionship. 
and the benefits that accrue from it saying that these are necessary that we may be maintained that we may be servants of the Lord I'm not saying that physical things are not necessary but I'm saying that where the emphasis lay oftentimes detect or tells us wherein our master lies you can't serve both Now, we go on. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than the meat, and the body than the raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither do they gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them, are you not much better than a bunch of birds? You see what's being said? When our emphasis is on mammon, what in effect are we saying? God, I don't think you can really look after it. You know, I, I know you'll, you'll help us. You'll par pardon me using this method of teaching, but I, I think it will illustrate a point. You know, we feel that maybe we should help a little bit. And if we have the odd bank account, and all those things that are associated with it, uh, we're helping you provide our daily bread and if there's a lean time you know that bankroll there is a hedge against bad times and you know uh, you know maybe there'll be a, a drought or we'll need to have something for hard times or maybe when we get old, our kids will pull Corbin on us. You know, we can use all kinds of reasoning. And uh, for the accumulation of this uh, world's goods. And so, vain are our ambitions, our noise, and our commotion. We heap up treasures mixed with wool, and we'll die and we'll leave them all behind if time goes on. But we've, we have rationalized in the acquisition of these things that we are doing our duty to our family and, as it were, assisting God in our maintenance. Not having developed, perhaps, to the point where we could fully trust in Him to be the provider of those things that are necessary for our life. We are living, as some of our speakers and people have said here today, in a very evil time. The subtlety of the media to sell us on the necessities for life. You know, you don't rate if you don't have your label on the back of your shirt. 
you don't write unless you have designer jeans. And if you're not driving one of the better cars, you know, one of the ads we have at home is that we can put you in such and such a car for less than $20,000. Man, you know, $20,000 to one who is depression-oriented is a, a, a fortune. And, you know, the, the subtlety of this influence on the mind that you need these things. And let me tell you something. We're not immune. We're sucked in just like the rest of them. We're not immune to this kind of propaganda that if we're going to subsist in that which is our right, then we had best grab these things while the grabbing's good. You know, our interests oftentimes subtly are diverted from the real focus and real purpose of our life. One of the other deceptive things, and I just dropped it there when I said our rights. You know, I don't know of anything that has had more detrimental effects to authority than this so-called law of liberty or civil rights. And uh, I must be careful when I'm in the United States, but we have it at home. Uh, the right of the individual. And you know, this is flaunted high, wide, and handsome. Teachers can no longer discipline children at school. It's so bad that a child today, if its parents beat it, can turn around and sue its parents, or beat it, or beat it, discipline it. Do you realize the extent that this society has gone? And listen, we are not immune from it. It's rubbing off on us. And instead of being a submissive disciple, we are becoming aggressive. You know, what happened was the last time when you were driving the road and somebody cut you off? Did you say, howdy, man? <laughs> no, you didn't. If I know you, or know me, I probably did a slow burn. In my case, it's a fast burn. But all I'm saying is that the bombardment of the affairs around us are having such a tremendous influence on us that it is often hard for us to distinguish between necessity and luxury. You know, there's never been a generation on the face of the earth that have enjoyed the luxuries that we do. There's nothing we have a need of. We're not short of anything. We've got spare time. We've got vehicles that we can run to and fro throughout the earth. We're getting the smarts. You know, we, we, we know a lot of things. And I think in this sense, it's indicative of the last days as spoken of by Daniel. But this generation has got a problem. And I've got it just as badly as you. I, I have a real problem with these things. You see, I'm a squirrel by nature. Well, what's a squirrel? He's a thing that goes around and gathers nuts up and he stores them away for a rainy day. And having come through the depression, I have referred to being depression-oriented. I don't like to waste anything. I'll wear blue jeans that shame my wife. But to me, that's fine. 
But the point is that because of the, the disposition that we acquire, in reality what we're saying is that we don't believe that God can look after us. Did you ever think of that? Commit your way unto the Lord. Do we? Or do we think we have to help him? Well, I could go on with this. I think really I've said enough on it. Uh, and the next one is, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto your statue? I shouldn't do that. And he says, why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how that they grow, and how they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith, and a lot of doubt? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. If we can rise to the demand that this suggestion makes of us we ought to be a carefree people but have you noticed how we walk around I told you I was a people watcher you know Christ tells us as we see this day approaching lift up our heads and rejoice for we know it's our salvation draws nigh as a bunch we can light up and smile but as the group we're tend to be kind of glum. Now, I'm not telling you that you, you, you got to be running around acting hilariously, but I think our deportment and our countenance ought to betray that we are thankful, carefree people because we have committed our way to the Lord and we're fully prepared to put our lives in his hands and trust him that he will see that we go not short of any of the things that are necessary for this life. I'd like to read you something, lest you think that all these ideas are mine. And I don't have very many ideas. This is an observation of a man of the world. When one sees the way in which wealth-getting enters in as an ideal into the very bone and marrow of our generation, one wonders whether a revival of the belief that poverty is a worthy religion, vo religious vocation 
may not be the spiritual reform which our time stands most in need of. We have grown literally afraid to be poor. I recommend that this matter to your serious pondering for it is certain that the prevalent fear of poverty among the educated classes is the worst moral disease from which our civilization suffers. We live in that environment where that fear of being poor is prevalent. And very few of us can truly commit our way totally to the Lord. I have a terrible time in this area. And I don't think I'm alone. By nature, I said I was a squirrel. I'm a workaholic. Uh, and I don't say these things to, to suggest that I'm blowing my own horn, as we have a saying at North, up north. But I'm simply saying that one who is an achiever and used to getting things done has a terrible time sitting back, and, as it were, to say, uh, maybe I don't have to drive myself this hard to get the necessities of life. Maybe what I ought to be doing is spending more time researching and studying that I might be mentally better prepared to view my responsibility before the Lord. And I suggest the same thoughts have obviously gone through your minds. And all I can suggest is work at it. It's attainable. Now, when we have analyzed ourselves very briefly this way this morning I think where our minds are prepared as it were to go to the next step and I think the next step is very very critical what does Jesus then say in this great sermon judge not that ye be not judged for with what judgment ye judge ye shall be judged and with what measure ye meet it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother eye, brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that is in thine own? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is sticking in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto dogs. Well, we, we'll, we'll come to that. He's talking about judging. And he's talking about judging within the brotherhood. You know, the background, of course, is to this a little parable that Jesus is using, or analogy, is what he would have experienced as a carpenter in his father's shop. Uh, he, he was used to working with wood and beams, you know, these things like up above. And if you handle them, oftentimes 
you get slivers in your fingers and if you're working overhead it isn't long until something drops in your eye and the ridiculousness of the illustration is this when a guy with a 2 by 4 protruding out of his eye he goes over and he tries to pick out a little fleck of sawdust from somebody else's you see how Jesus uses the familiar things that he had grown up with to make ridiculous the act of a brother trying to correct another brother when he's so ridden with fault himself that his whole outlook and concept of life is distorted now I'd like to read you again from another source and this is Malva Perkis now what have we been talking about I, I, I want to get the setting here just correct we've been talking about what our aptitude must be if we are to attain the attitude that is necessary to be completely trusting in the Lord and concerned about how our habits and our behavior is you've got that point we've gone through a little bit of self-analysis here for a few minutes and if you're looking in the mirror like I am the image that we see isn't that great so we're now in a position where we've been very difficult and harsh on ourselves without the constant lesson of Christ's example there is a very real possibility of the heart hardening under a passion for righteousness rigorous self-discipline can lead to a disturbingly harsh attitude toward the failing of others and this is cited in relation to our attitude in judging our brothers self-discipline is necessary and if we have some degree of success we can begin to get a little distorted view on ourselves can I cite a, an example I've, I'm told that you shouldn't use personal experiences but you can better speak of things you've experienced in our trade we, we were in the sheet metal business and uh, like doctors there's good sheet metal men and bad ones and you get both kinds now if you have some degree of expertise yourself it is very difficult to sit back and watch somebody who is clumsy it takes a little bit of discipline to step back and say well let them go uh, and also if you happen to be one who is a driver who gets things done it's very difficult for you to sit back and watch a plotter 
They're going to get there, but it'll be take a while. But if you're meeting them on the way back, it's very difficult for you to keep your mouth quiet. Now, why do I cite those things? The lesson ought to be obvious. If there's any degree of success in self-discipline on, on our part, instead of being intolerant and less compassionate and understanding and merciful to others who are walking the same road as ourselves, we ought to be like Jesus if, if we could ever attain to the magnitude of his character. We read of Jesus that he was tried and tempted in all points like his wheat and as a great high priest and able to succor those who come unto him. Why? Because he's experienced the problems of the members of the human race and can relate to it and empathize with the difficulty the individual is having. Now, if that is his example and the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is to urge us to be like him who is a reflection of his father ought we not also to have that kind of empathy for our brethren who are having difficulties ought we not to be tolerant of them and their problems and their vicissitudes instead of being impatient that they don't measure up quite to what we hoped they would I'm talking now of personalities. I think you'll get my point. Now, we go on. Uh, incidentally, uh, one of the, the writers, it may have been Malvin Perkis, uh, you've heard the expression, some of us glory being able to spot the imperfections in other people. My mother-in-law was a pretty smart woman. And she said, the subtlety of that kind of attention is that it makes you think you're great. If you can find the fault in somebody else, it makes you, in your mind, great or better than they. And therefore, you cultivate this art of fault finding. And it makes you feel great. Oh. You know, we all have feet of clay. And while the area that we may be strong in, our brother is deficit, we would expect him to be tolerant in our weakness. We expect God to be merciful to us in our weaknesses. Ought we not also be prepared to bear with those who have difficulties? Let's be careful when we start getting a little dust out of somebody's eye that the plank in our eye doesn't get in the way. I suggest that this at least is in the ideas that Jesus would pray or would suggest here in the recommendations of a way of life that he would expect his followers to have.
we've got a few moments more. Uh, I think that we could comment on the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th verses. I think the background has been established more or less that it is necessary for us to have complete trust in God. Because God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. This, these few verses that I had reference to we should read. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom his son asks bread or give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish will he give him a serpent? If then, being evil, if ye then, being evil, know how to good, give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Give good things to them that ask him. We said that God has assured us through what we have read of the lilies and the birds. Now we're getting into another area. Now in the prayer that Jesus gave as an example as how we ought to pray, he suggested that what we ask for first is the kingdom and the glory of God on the earth, that the will of God might be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we're to ask for our daily maintenance. And then we're to ask for forgiveness. Now I don't believe that in the instruction that Jesus is giving here, he in any way suggests that the things that we should ask of our Father are like a great big palace somewhere. Or a uh, stretch limousine or the best dress on the street and all these things are the finest tailored suit I think what he's suggesting is that we ask for those things that we know God will give us and our desire from God to have his kingdom established on the earth ought to be the first and foremost in the things that we request of him the ultimate, of course, is the greatest gift that God could give his children is his nature. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That ought to be what our center of attention should be in addressing our Father. The analogy in these examples are uh, if, a, if a son asks his father for a piece of bread, he doesn't give him a stone. If we in this life are able to relate to the needs of our children, our Heavenly Father, who is our Creator, is very aware of our needs. And the greatest need that we have and will ever need is His guidance through His Word, which will ultimately lead to the gift of God of life eternal in his kingdom. Remember, this is not giving license to be free 
and easy with the things we ask of God that they might be consumed upon our own lust but rather those things that are consistent with what he will give his servants I'd say our time is gone committee saw fit to allow Mark make those remarks this morning uh, I've always been told I'm always bringing up the rear uh, today it's uh, I want to thank brother John for allowing me to have the class first because we hope to get on our way it's not just that I want to be first and I'm and because I'm first I won't have to keep you in suspense about maybe I might tell you a little story so Chuck you can rest easy this little perusal that we have had of the Sermon on the Mount I will be the first to admit that it has been very superficial and those of you who would accuse me of glossing over uh, many of the areas and not going into great detail on them I will acknowledge you're right but what we have tried to do in this look at the Sermon on the Mount is to try as we have indicated all the way through to recognize that what Jesus is demanding in this policy speech is that those that would follow him had to do it with the right spirit and the right attitude and the, the only way the only way that we could ever possibly hope to measure up to the loftiness of the concepts that are in the principles of the Beatitudes is by having a right attitude of our own unworthiness once we get to the position where we think we are great or we are to be reckoned with or we are to be noted or we are to be heard or whatever the rationale you want to use whenever we get to that position we have the right attitude when we think we're something look out now having set that as the premise as I see the Sermon on the Mount which warrants a much deeper and concerted study than what we have given it this week we will continue with the hope that we can come to some sort of a conclusion as a result of the things that Jesus has said in this talk that he has given of principles of behavior in the 12th chapter of the, in the 12th verse of the 7th chapter he talks about the golden rule well if people remember and I'm talking about most outside people that know little or nothing about the teachings of Jesus if they 
remember anything of the Servant on the Mount, it is this golden rule. And it's a tremendous principle. But again, it, 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 it is uh, predicated upon a proper attitude. If you will do to others what you expect to do to them, or have them do to you, or do for you, you first of all have to be prepared to extend that courtesy to them. See, it isn't the other way on. You have to make the step. If you want others to do for you what you would like, you must first do it for them. You know, we like to get it the other way on, don't we? You know, I'll respond in kind. It's the nature of the beast. And in doing this, Jesus tells us that the principles of the law and the prophets would be fulfilled. That if you would do unto men what you would have them do unto you. Our brother spoke this morning briefly on the entering in on the straight gate, which is the next thought. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that will lead unto life, and few there will be that find it. He's speaking of a principle here. One of the writers suggests that at the time of Jesus, that he was speaking of something that they were all aware of, the, the broad way and the narrow. And one has suggested that as one went into Jerusalem, there was a, a broad road, wide road, that led down to uh, Gehenna or that area. And to get to the temple or the place of worship, it was necessary to break off that road and go up a rather steep way or steep path which indicated that to break off the broad which was the easy way which led to Gehenna in in type and go up the other it involved a little bit of effort the the word strive to get onto that road means to originally to agonize it requires an effort and an effort to do that which is difficult requires an attitude to do it. You see, it doesn't come naturally to do things that we don't like. It's the very opposite. And if something is restrictive and it is going to uh, forbid us certain privileges or uh, the way demands an effort on our part, we tend to shun it. We, we, as humans, pick the easy way. And so this is the principle that he's talking about here, that if we're going to get into God's kingdom, in essence, then we must avoid the easy way. We can't float into the kingdom. It must be by effort and a concerted effort predicated upon an attitude to serve God pleasingly.
We next come to the 15th verse of this 7th chapter that has to do with false prophets which come in to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravening, ravening wolves. You realize again, as we said several times during our talks, that obviously these messages were intended for those who were the apostles, not the broad multitude. Therefore, what he is talking about in this particular area is a group of people who have dedicated themselves to serve God along the means he has prescribed or ways and into that assembly or into that group will come people whom he speaks of as false prophets, false teachers, ones who would have a wolf attitude. Now, a wolf, as you know, is a, a predator. He uh, eats the weak and he eats the infirm. He eats those things that uh, are sick and maimed and he tends to uh, wreak havoc wherever he goes. Sheep on the other hand uh, are sort of docile animals and uh, readily handled. The illustration of Christ at his sacrifice when it says of him that he was as a sheep who opened not its mouth before the shears, Christ went meekly, quietly to that role which God had laid out for him as a lamb of sacrifice for the world. The contrast between the sheep and the wolf as illustrated here is to indicate the difference in personalities or intentions or attitude. Now, it's peculiar to me, and I haven't been able to get a true handle on this. Uh, these people who are considered here as wolves, the message, of course, is given as a warning, as to be alerted to the fact that into this group of people who had dedicated their lives to the Lord, there would be those who would come in under false pretenses. Uh, what I can't get a handle on, and I'll be perfectly frank with you, is I have never been able to quite associate somebody who has learned the truth, who comes in with the intention of being a wolf. Now I can see the wolf aspect developing after but coming in as uh, a wolf clothed in sheep clothing indicate to me that this individual had the intention of being disruptive long before he made a commitment to be in that group. Now, maybe you have the answer for it. I don't. Uh, Obviously, there must have been that type or, or the possibility of that type or Jesus would not have given this uh, warning. I don't think it's necessary for us to explore where these people come from. I think that's the expression of the day, their attitude. Uh, but rather, 
be alerted to the fact that there is this possibility. And if someone is going around fighting and mutilating and destroying the sheep, then we have been warned that this could happen. Now you notice that Jesus doesn't say anything in here how we ought to defense against this, excepting to be aware that it is a possibility. And when it comes, we're not to be alarmed, or shall we say, that isn't the right word I should use, not be surprised that it has come. So we are, by this injunction, to be ready for the possibility that this sort of a wolf will sneak into the assembled group who have dedicated their lives to the Lord. Now how do you find these people? Do you uh, look behind their ears or tell them to open their mouth and let's see what their claws look like? Is that how you check them out? Well, I'm being a little bit of a boat. I try and be funny when I say those things. No, uh, Jesus says you can judge that wolf by what he does. Like uh, a tree. You judge a tree by what it produces. You wouldn't expect to get a nice Louisiana plum from one of these briars that grow out here. On the other hand, you wouldn't expect the Louisiana plum tree to give you one of these briar uh, in its branches, thorns. So when you look at people who are in the assembly dedicated to their, uh, supposedly dedicated to the service of the Lord, you know them by their behavior or what they produce. The fruits of the Spirit, of course, are indicated in Galatians. Uh, for sake of time, we uh, won't look them up, but I think you're all aware of them. You're also aware there of the indications which show the, whether the man is motivated by the principles of serving God or serving flesh. Galatians 5 is, is a chapter that deals with those things. And having established those principles to discern by what a man does, that is the measuring stick that we use to assert whether an, an individual is a wolf or whether he is a lamb intending on serving the Lord. Now, by their fruits ye shall know them. There's nothing in here to indicate what he does or what he suggests doing with these wolves that have been uh, defrocked, as it were. Their, their sheepskin pulled off and their teeth exposed. It's a defense mechanism that he is suggesting in here 
if you know that there's going to be or the possibility of a problem you defense for it and fortify yourself that you will not be persuaded or interfered with or harmed by the intention of that wolf and the wolf will make himself manifest we have a saying that if you give an individual enough rope he'll hang himself the inference is that by what a person does you will very quickly find out what has motivated them and then you guard against their influence in industry uh, I'm going to talk here for a moment about uh, the, the idea of uh, detection in industry there is a tool that they use it's called the why critique some of you have probably heard of it it's a tool in industry to try to get to the root of the problem if you have a problem in production you assemble your production crew and then you begin by asking a series of questions why uh, why are we not getting the uh, number of cars off the end of this assembly line that we should well it's because we have an operator down there that uh, isn't functioning properly well why isn't this operator functioning properly well uh, he got up late or he's having trouble at home well you, you know you can go on and on and, and, and eventually you narrow down by the why critique the, the, the problem and it can be applied to many things it could be applied to ourselves it could be applied to uh, individuals in our ecclesia why are there people who have this wolf attitude in our group we've been warned that they'll come we're not surprised when they show up but the thing is why what makes them tick as it were I suggest to you that they are wolves seeking self-gratification attention if you narrow it down it comes to that this individual is motivated by the principle of self-gratification and it's something that all of us have to fight the wolf in the sheep's clothing has a cover-up he's a play actor he's a hypocrite he can be many things he can even be ourselves if we are there in the role of a servant of Christ in a cloak for the purpose of self 
aggrandizement. The mind can play real tricks on us if we let it. We mention rationalization and so on. You see, he says that the false prophet or the wolf comes in to you. And he doesn't say exactly where he comes from or when he will come, but he surely will come. And so therefore, where he comes from is really a result of the attitude and the thinking of that individual. Having been warned to guard against this, our premise then is to be alert. Judging people by what they do, and that will in turn detect their attitudes. All right. Verse 21. Everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Pardon me. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. We were talking yesterday about where in the uh, Sermon on the Mount does Jesus say that he will be the judge in the last days. And this is at least one of the areas. He's indicating in this verse that he will be the judge at the last day. He nominates at the very beginning of his ministry that he will be the judge. He that saith to me, Lord, Lord, at that day, which is the day of judgment, simply by professing to be a follower of Jesus, verbalizing, is not credential enough or credit enough to get into God's kingdom. The premise is, as his half-brother James says, he must be a doer of the law. And Jesus said, he that doeth the will of my Father will be in God's kingdom. Many will say to me in that day again, the fact that uh, he is to be judge, we've done a lot of good things in your name. We, we, we've been to Bible schools, we've uh, rooted out wolves, we've done this and that and the other thing. Uh, there's an indication in here of attitude. He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, will enter into the kingdom. Is the will of the Father to prophesy in his name, uh, cast out devils, and done many wonderful works? Are they not the will of the Father? Well, why is the one disqualified in this little discourse and the other not? if it's not to do with the attitude. The attitude of the one who cites his great works is to indicate that God is indebted to him. You see, that's an attitudinal problem. You see, we can't make God, no matter how we may want to maneuver, we can't make him indebted to us. I, I use the us uh, as a 
way of speaking. Uh, you know, it, it's a pharisaical attitude. You know, you thump your chest on, or thump your, thump your hand on your chest, or pat yourself on the back. Say, what a great guy I am. I do this, I do that, and boy, I've been here and I've been there and so on. We, we, we tend to indicate that God is indebted to us for how much we've done. Well, we don't have to get into a discussion of, to whether uh, God's indebted to us or whether we're indebted to him. We're all fully persuaded that we are in God's debt and we can't subsist without him we have no hope for the future without him and therefore uh, before him we are as nothing but if we try to infer by the things we do that we are putting God in debt to us we've got the wrong attitude those that do that, Christ will say in the day, I don't know you. You're not the same mind as me. I was willing to do what the Father required of me because I was motivated out of love. I was motivated out of the idea of being serviceable to my Father. But if you think that by doing those things you, you perceive to be God's will that you're the same mind as me and that you are doing it to establish I think they use a term sometimes in the uh, accounting world of brownie points uh, you know girls in the brownies get little badges well if uh, maybe you don't have brownies down here they're girl scouts how's that if you can get these little badges, you, you, you uh, uh, have shown some growth or progress, some things you've accomplished. If one in this life tries to bargain, as it were, with God out of the things they've done to make their place sure out of a point of being God uh, obligated to them, then obviously the attitude is wrong. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto him or liken him unto a wise man which buildeth his house upon a rock. A man the matter of that which was discussed earlier when we talked about the uh, principles of poor spirit, the principle of mourning, and the principle of meekness, and that of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. This is the foundation of attitude that is necessary that a man may build a character or a house that would be acceptable place of protection if I can use that word in the days to come because this is the comparison that Jesus makes further in this little discussion that he has in relation to the building he says that a man that builds on solid principles will build a house 
that will withstand the problems that will come surely to that individual in the days that will come. He goes on and he says, The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And then we go on and he talks about that everyone that heareth the sayings of mine and doeth them not, pardon me, and everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. Now the contrast here is between the wise man and the foolish man. The contrast also goes to the fact that both obviously are builders. The contrast also suggests that one builds on the rock and the other builds on sand. And the indication that Jesus is making here, among many other deeper things, is the fact that the place or the foundation on which an individual builds is the criteria by which one will know whether or not the building will stand. Rock as opposed to sand. Rock is solid, sand shifts, moves. Those that are built upon the principles that Christ indicated in this parable would, uh, at least in this sermon and the Beatitudes, is reckoned as a firm foundation like bedrock. It will not move. We could expand on that to the point where we could say the foundation of the hope of one who is have of a proper attitude are the promises. And those things that were given by God in assurance and covenant to those who would serve him. That is the foundation rock of our faith. And without it, any edifice that is built upon it, namely an edifice of character, will be stable. It's not going to be shifting. And it's not going to be moving all the time from the principle that it is grounded upon in its foundation. On the other hand, there are those who would start out to build this rock without a clear and firm foundation. Perhaps their uh, ability to comprehend the, the uh, value of a good understanding, which is equivalent to knowing that firm foundation on which the house is to be built. But there are those who build upon a poor foundation, just as there is in the building business. At home I shudder when I go through some of the uh, surveys that are being uh, built in our area. You know, the land will have a, a rolling terrain, and what they'll do, they'll bring bulldozers in and earth movers, and they'll level it all off. They fill the valleys and they cut off the tops. Now they run through with compactors and so on with the idea that the uh, ground will be compacted in the low areas so that there will be some stability. But when the rain descends and the floods come and the winds blow and beat upon those houses, that land that is supposed to have been compacted has no stability in it. And these houses will develop cracks 
and uh, the foundations will splinter and the house will be a poor investment. This is the same sort of a suggestion that is being made in this parable that Jesus is giving here. That it is possible to build on an incorrect foundation. Otherwise he wouldn't have said it. So therefore, it is necessary for those that are the true followers of Jesus and his following in his footsteps in service to the Lord that they have the right foundation as centered in the promises that we had already heard. Now we come to another inference that this parable suggests. Remember, this is a principle that Jesus is laying down that all who would be his followers must recognize a principle. And the principle is that if you're going to build your house, and hopefully it's on the rock, and that is up to you, or us, or me, when the rain comes, and the floods come, and the wind blows, what is he suggesting? He's suggesting a period when the stability of that building is going to be tested. You notice that he doesn't say when a man comes up and pushes on the house, or when uh, somebody starts to pry off a board off the siding, or whether uh, somebody starts to cut a hole in your roof. The illustrations of the testing indicate that they are centered in the Lord. Because who else but God has control over the rain and the floods and the wind? So the suggestion is that the trials and the tribulations that will test the house that is being built are from God. And, and, and this is not a new principle. Uh, certainly, if... Uh, let, let's just look at, at one that, uh, that you can put in your file. And uh, it, it, it's, it's a principle that is borne out by the, the scriptures, but one that uh, is easy to see. Hmm. My son, well, this is uh, Proverbs 3 and starts at verse 5. Honor the Lord with thy substance, with the first fruits of thine increase. Again, back to this parable that was used earlier. My son, despise, pardon me, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as the father the son in whom he delighted. And he goes on, 
happy is the man that finds wisdom. The principle is that the trials on our house will be God-oriented. Now, sometimes, most times, the chastening of the Lord is not pleasant. The testing of the house. The stability of the house. But let me tell you something. There is a hope that if the foundation is correct, that the period of testing will be weathered. We are assured that the testing is to prove our worth. And once that is established, the uh, testing will ease off. There's something else that we ought to be aware of. God spoke of sifting the nation of Israel. Now sifting is done in several ways. Sifting is done to separate the chaff from the wheat. The sifting is done in, in some cases that the bad falls out and the good stays in. The screen or the, the uh, method of separating is devised for that purpose of separation. And in Amos 9 and 9, if you want to write it down and look it up later, God talks about how he sifted Israel. And he said that none, the inferences in that particular verse, that none of the good would be lost. The good seed wouldn't go through the screen. It's something to think about. If, if the foundation of one who is attempting to serve the Lord is correct, even in the period of sifting, difficult and harsh as it may be, and emotionally draining and straining, the good won't fall through. Something to think about. But the test will come, and let me tell you something that I'm totally convinced of, that we'll be tested in the areas in which we are the most vulnerable. We're not going to be tested where we're strong, because there's no test. We're going to be tested where we're the weakest. And it's like a piece of machinery. You, you can have a great piece of machinery, but the weak link is what causes the piece of machinery to break down. So in our characters, our dispositions, the area that is most likely to crack is the area wherein we're the weakest. And we're all going to be tested, and we're no, as we indicated from Amos 9 and 9, that the good grain or the good wheat will not be lost. Sometimes in, in sizing of grain and uh, appraising its quality, it's often forced through sizers, as it were. Uh, it, number one, grain is a certain uh, size, and it's a certain dryness, and it's all various things are used to measure it. 
But when that grain is measured to its uh, rating, let me put it that way, it has to be forced through uh, something that determines its size, whether or not it meets the standard. You can also think of that in the sense of the testing that we go through. We're, we're drawn as it were through a knot, as this expression is used sometimes. And, and it's to determine the quality or the size or the capacity, whatever you want to phrase it, of that which is being tested. The testing will come. Those that are right on the right foundation will weather the storm. It won't be easy. The wind shakes the house and it rattles the windows and the boards may flap on the side and the glass in the window may give a tinkling sound. The analogies you can see apply it to ourselves. Our house will be shaken and it'll rattle and we'll be shaken right to our foundation with some of the things that we are called upon to bear. But if the foundation is correct, if the attitude is right, if our attitude is selflessness and a dedication to serve God as his son showed us in his example, we'll weather the storm. The house won't fall and it'll stand and it'll be something that will be of value, a place of refuge, a place of comfort to those that have survived, if I can put it that way. Because that house, which is the analogy of an individual, that house can be a source of inspiration uh, to others in the ecclesia. If you look on a member house in your ecclesia that has endured great things and still remain firm and dedicated with an attitude of serving God acceptably, aren't they an inspiration to all of us? Aren't they that kind of an example that you don't look as a ravening wolf, but as a stabling influence in the ecclesia? These are at least some of the things that we can glean from the Sermon on the Mount. I've said to you, I feel that I have treated this subject superficially. I feel that there's a great deal more that all of us can get out of it. I hope when you go to your homes that you will further study it. Uh, I'm not that naive that I think that I've motivated you. 
I am aware of human nature. I realize that when we get away from this building, as our brother indicated this morning, that we run out of gas. Our enthusiasm is great now. And we're maybe saying to ourselves, yes, I, I will look into these things. Uh, I wouldn't be the least surprised if very few, if any, of you do. Now, I'm not saying that to your shame. I, I know how we are. But hopefully you will. And I would hope that you would look at the Sermon on the Mount, again, as we said, with the idea of determining our attitudes. What do I say at the end? And I'm uh, I'm not cutting this short purposely. I have had many things that I intended to say and haven't. Uh, there's many many things that I should have said and haven't. Hopefully, as a result of this effort, we'll go home perhaps with uh, a little different attitude to our own capacities. Now, you remember very early in the discussions that we had, we said that the principles that are contained in the Sermon on the Mount, that they are so serious that those who have the right attitude are assured that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the warning is there that if our righteousness would not exceed that of the Pharisees, there was no chance that we could get into the kingdom of God. Remember, that I also said and you may think this is rather strange that I should bring this in here and I do it I believe to make a point you all related readily to the fact that I said that I was not Jimmy Swagger and a lot of you will remember this class because I said I was not Jimmy Swagger and whenever you think of me you will probably think of Jimmy Swagger I hope when you do that that you will remember that I also said that I felt that if the Christadelphians were not able to get into the kingdom of God it would not be because of a doctrinal problem but because of a wrong attitude.